and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Yay, brilliant. Okay. Well, um, great to be with you tonight, Oikos. And um, yeah, so we've been, uh, we've been looking through a, a series in, in Ephesians where Paul unpacks for us what new life in Christ looks like, both personally and communally. And he, he sets forth a compelling vision of, of, of life under the Lordship of Christ. And right at the beginning, we see the foundations of this being set where he says, look, this is not something that you've done. It's something Christ has done. And this has been something that he's done, not just in this time and this moment, but he's set this in, in, in this course in place from, for, from before the beginning of the world. And um, he then sort of unpacks how that can lead our, our identity in Christ, our, our rooted in being um, say through Christ can lead to being satisfied in him in all sorts of different different ways but there's two theme, themes that I, I, for me have really stuck stuck out from um, from Ephesians which I think is significant for understanding this passage the first one is about the love of God that you are loved by the true and the living God and we again we we, we see this he says beloved children uh, a number of times in this passage, but then also we just see how Paul explains how the love of Christ, uh, love of God, has been set in place for you before the foundation of the earth, and has come place, come into place through uh, Jesus' death on the cross uh, for us. And and so 
he wants us to, to know and to marinate on that as, as believers. You are loved by the true and the living God. Now, if we, we take that reality on board into our lives, uh, it, it's, it's radically transforming, isn't it? You know, who does not want to be loved? Think about just an earthy relationship that you, that you may have been, been in, may well be in. What difference does it mean to you or know to you know for you um, to be loved in that situation? Well, it probably is going to bring a lot of freedom, isn't it? Uh, it's probably going to bring a, a lot of joy. It's probably going to bring a lot of satisfaction. It's probably going to bring a lot of safety. And so God wants us as his people to understand that we are loved by him. That's the first reality. The second reality that I, I feel comes out over and over again in this passage, in this um, in Ephesians, is the idea of the power of God. So we've got the love of God, but then the power of God. And essentially what Paul is uh, telling us is this, that it, it is impossible for us to live the Christian life without the power of God. And then he explains that means being filled with the Spirit, that we are those who continually are filled with the Spirit and continually walk in the Spirit. And this is why we started at verse 18 here, because there's a link to the three different types of relationships that he's going to go on to talk about in this. He's going to talk about a relationship in marriage, which we'll focus on today. Then the next week, he's going to look at, uh, we'll, we'll look at uh, relationships in the home with family and then we're going to look at the relationships with with work and and so there's a significance here that he basically says look there's two different ways in which we can get courage or comfort one is you can get drunk on wine a spirit uh, which leads to debauchery leads to us doing things that we don't want to do or we can be filled with the holy spirit which leads us to do things that we we do want to do um and um i suppose in one sense what he's saying is this a wise person is one who says no to intoxication but says yes to being filled with the spirit and um interestingly it's almost like he's saying as you do that it brings out the real you. So you get drunk with wine. It brings out the real you, the real old you, if we're, we're believers, that the flesh stuff, it, it disinhibits us. It comes out. What comes out of our mouth is in our hearts. We, we know that. Um, and so we, it leads to all sorts of things that we wouldn't normally do. But because we've got the spirit in us, the spirit of wine, it leads to the old ways coming out or the other option is that we say no to that sort of living, but we say yes to being filled with the Spirit, and that leads to the real you, the real new you, the real sanctified you, and what comes out is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes a person loving, it makes a person forgiving, makes a person uh, full of peace, self-control, gentleness, uh, servant-hearted towards others, and we'll see to our, our spouse. But this is a constant reality for the believer. We need to be constantly filled with the Spirit. Why? Because we're in constant need of new grace every single day. We need joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control every single day to do what is right. It is impossible for us to please God without the Holy Spirit taking control. And really, that's what we're saying when we're asking the Holy Spirit 
to fill us, we, we are giving him permission to lead us and to work through us and to control our actions and our words. The Holy Spirit we know is a gentleman. He comes um, not with force upon us, but he comes as we invite him, as we hand over control to him. And then interestingly, in this passage, verses sort of 19 to 20, what we'll see is there are two effects that Paul gives us um, of someone who's filled with the Spirit. Uh, the first one is joy, celebratory joy. Um, he says, look, address, address one another. So when we're filled with the Spirit, what, what will we do? We'll, we'll address one another in hymns, sorry, in, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Piper says the fundamental meaning of being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the joy that comes from God. And so this joy, as we're filled with the Spirit, it's like this irrepressible joy of our salvation, our hope in God, our, our love for God, bursts out of one's heart in such a way that are, it's like, I don't know if he was actually saying that they should sing to one another. That would be great. It'd be like an operatic, wouldn't it? Of worship to one another. We, we wouldn't talk to one another. We would sing, oh, I love the Lord. He's so wonderful. And then you'd go back. I know, I know. He fills me every day. His joys are overflowing. Maybe we should start this. Um, this, this sounds like an amazing way. We can be the, you can be the singing church. Um, anyway. I don't know if he meant that it would be literally that every time they would come together, the conversation would be sung. But uh, this idea that they would be making melody, their hearts would be singing. He says making melody from our hearts. And it would come out in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And essentially the content of those, of those songs and hymns are giving thanks to God. So when we're filled with the Spirit, it leads to this communal joy, addressing one another with celebratory joy of what God has done for us. I'll be honest, Paul has already talked about this a little bit uh, previously in, in to the Ephesians about always giving thanks. But here he frames it in, in a context of um, overspilling joy. And he says that we should do always. So this is not merely a, a Sunday event or a midweek event but something that, that, that every time we see one another, the content of our conversation, for those of us who are spirit-filled, which I believe should be all of us, is that we speak well of Christ and therefore we speak well of others. And as we speak well of others, we're glorifying Christ, aren't we? We're saying this is how Christ see, sees them. I see Christ in them. I, I value this person this way. Now, of course, there, there are going to be different seasons of the soul, aren't there? different times where our song might be through tears. It might be through sadness. It might be through disappointment. It might be through frustration. Uh, it might be through loss. But even in those seasons of the soul, it leads us. There's always joy. We're told that joy always comes in the morning. We, we come and we give thanks. Many of us have known times of, of loss which have also been times of great thankfulness and joy in the midst of them. So I suppose one question might be for us as a church, but also as individuals, 
what are we known for? Are we known for giving thanks or for complaining or for grumbling? Well, Paul tells us here that the first, first thing that we see of people who fill with the Spirit is that we need to be thankful people. Now, this is a discipline that we've got to work at. It doesn't always come easy. But when we're filled with the Spirit, it will lead us. So when we hand over control and we say like Jesus, not my will be done, but yours, then it will lead us to be celebratory people, always giving thanks to God. The second thing we're, we're going to see is a mutual submission. Now, this is really significant to all the relationships that he's going to talk about uh, in a moment, as he writes about it in, in, in this letter, because uh, what we're going to see is that in every situation, he's going to talk about the need for submission. So in the marriage, he's going to talk about need for submission. With, with children to parents, he's going to talk about the need for submission. And in the workplace, he's going to need to talk about, he's going to talk about submission. And I think it's important here that even before he talks all about, uh, talks about submission in those relationships, what we see is this mutual submission within the church. So submission is not merely some, uh, a specific command for children or for wives. No, no, no. This is a command for every single believer. When the spirit comes in us, it leads us to a mutual submission to one another. Now, there is a particular submission that takes place within the context of marriage and with children and parents, but I want you to see this is a universal Christian command, not something for some and not for others. John Stott talks about this mutual submission. He says that the Holy Spirit is a humble spirit, and those who are truly filled with him always display the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. It is one of the most evident characteristics that they submit to one another. So what is he saying? Look, you know, when the evidence characteristics that we are God's people, therefore filled with the spirit, is that we humbly submit to one another. This is a universal command. It's not just a, a particular command to some and not to others. It's for all of us. And we need to understand the passages uh, about uh, marriage and uh, family life within the context of this broader uh, command to submit. And of course, this, this, this idea of submission is a fruit of the spirit and therefore isn't natural. So if there are times when you struggle to submit and you find it hard to submit, where you, well, your flesh really wants to puff yourself up and put yourself in the first place, then you're not alone because submission can only really be done when we do say the most sacrificial thing that we can possibly say, not my will, but yours be done. It says, the reason that we will submit to one another is out of reverence for Christ, out of our love for Christ, out of our awe for Christ, out of our, out of our looking upon Christ and his life and what he has done. And we say, that's amazing. I, I want to be like that. I want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And so my motive is I want other people to see that Jesus lives in me and he has changed me and that there is value in living life this way, that there is wisdom. Now, remember, he starts off this pa pa the passage in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And one of the ways in which we're wise is that we learn that submission is a beautiful thing and that we should all seek to submit to one another. I think the main reason we struggle to submit to one another 
is that we struggle to submit to Christ. How can we submit to others if we can't submit to Christ? Some, some of Jesus' command, well, ultimately, Jesus, one of Jesus' commands is to submit to one another. And therefore, not submitting to one another is not submitting to Christ. But Christ's commands, are, they're powerful, aren't they? They're radical. They're life-changing. They're so utterly different. And they're so hard to fulfill unless we're filled with the Spirit. Unless we know the power of God in us working through us, when we, when we receive that power, when we're daily filled with that, with the power of God at work in us. Now, sometimes we might think, you know, well, that's okay for some, but, but not for others. I, you know, I'm, I'm not really. I mean, I know the Spirit lives in me because He He's the seal, the guarantee. We've been told that already of our salvation, but you know. There, there are some there's some sort of super special Christians out there who are really filled with the spirit. Well, Tozer says that's, that's a poppycock. Uh, he says, no, he said the spirit filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. God wants to fill every single one of us with his mighty power. Why? So that we can be the church. The church is a body made up of people who are filled with the spirit of God, living, seeking to live out the commands of Jesus in such a way that it will lead to others falling in love with him and confessing their sin. E.M. Bounds talks about this in the context of prayer, where he says, look, the what the church needs today it's not more machinery or better, not new organization or more novel, not novel methods, but men and women who the Holy Ghost can use. Men and women of prayer, men and women of mighty in prayer. So what he's saying is this. You know, we need people who are filled with the spirit. People who will, who will bow the knee in prayer before their father, knowing that the battle that we face is a spiritual, primarily a spiritual reality that's being lived out in a temporal, earthly reality. That our, our, our enemy is not one another, but it's Satan at work in this world to try and bring as much, to try and do as much damage as he can before the final victory is uh, in place. So I wanted to sort of share that first point because each of the relationships you're going to talk about can only be done unless we're filled with the Spirit. So essentially, the question then is, how can we be those uh, who are filled in the Spirit? And the first context a relationship he talks about is, is marriage. Now, for those of us who, uh, of you who are not married, don't switch off because marriage plays a special part in the way in which God is seeking to order. Now, both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. So we don't want to say, look, marriage is a gift from God. Singleness isn't a gift from God. No, we, we read in the Bible that it both can be a gift and there are benefits that God says are good in one and good in another. So let's not switch off, but let's learn from this to, to see the way in which Christ is seen in biblical marriage. And in verses 22 and 24, Paul exhorts the wife 
and then in 25 and 30, the husband, that with the Spirit's help, they can seek to love and be loved by one another in the same way that Christ loves his church. God's good plan for marriage was always that it would be a place where humans would flourish in their relationship, where the human race would multiply and would provide an order and a structure for society and life together. And I think this passage is especially important in our, in our current culture because the foundation of marriage seems to be crumbling in our culture. People are confused about gender, marriage and family. Uh, and some are outright hostile towards the historical Christian view on marriage. And this is not just merely about definitions or ideologies or personal identity, but this is a real spiritual battle. Satan is attacking marriages. He's attacking the concept of biblical marriage, but he's also attacking individual marriages within the church to try and bring um, us to a halt in our love for God, enjoyment of God, and our, our effective witness for God. He wants to tear down God's plan for human flourishment in society. Now, I think it may be important just to um, define marriage and start again does a good um, description here of what marriage is because um, we might not want to take it well I think it would be good to define it so marriage is this exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman it's ordained and sealed by God and proceeds by the leaving of parents consummated in sexual union and is sharing in a permanent mutual supportive partnership and um, normally is crowned with the gift of children. And the marriage structure here is not chauvinism, but it's, it's headship and it's rooted in creation, uh, where we get this picture of marriage where you have two equals having differing roles. And we've already seen this idea of equals having differing roles as, as, as Paul has described the way in which we function within the, the church, that there are many parts within the body, equal and valuable, under the headship of Christ. So now we see that in marriage in the same way, the husband is given the responsibility to be the loving head in marriage. And in brief, and just to overview, and if you don't remember anything else I say, um, this passage really sets out that the husband is to love his wife with a sacrificial love that is modeled by Jesus' death for his bride, the church, and the wife is to follow and submit to the loving leading of the head of the family, the husband, just like we submit to Christ, who is the head of the body of Christ. So why don't we just dig into um, what it might mean to be spirit-filled wives and husbands. And I'm going to start by reversing the passages and starting with husbands. So men, um, I'm speaking to you here. So in verse 25, Paul unpacks this radical life that, that happens in marriage where one um, seeks to, to model Christ and his relationship with the church by a husband giving up everything for her. What does it mean? So he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does it mean for us? as husbands, to give up 
ourselves for our wives? Well, it seems to me that it means to be Christ-like in our sacrifice. And maybe two examples that we could use here is that, that in being Christ-like in our love means to be to have a cross-shaped love. That just as Jesus was beaten and bruised, just as the crown of thorns were thrust on his head, his hands and his feet were nailed to the cross and the spear was jabbed in his side. And he did all of this. He suffered all of that so that he might express his love for the Christ. So as husbands, we must seek to um, um, put ourselves in a place where we sacrificially um, will put our wives first, even at the cost of ourselves, even at the, 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 the um, dying to our own self. And, and this is not, um, again, chauvinism or, you know, you know, or just an old fashioned view of what a husband and wife might do. This is not just merely opening the door, but this is just saying, look, Christ gave himself up. He was willing to suffer anything so that he might have a wonderful bride for himself. He might redeem a bride for himself. So there's sacrifice, radical sacrificial love in marriage. But we also see this, that it's a kind of foot washing type of love. Again, his headship is modeled by the way in which he serves. We're told Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. He knelt down. He did the dirty jobs. He washed some dirty and smelly feet of his disciples. Now, was he greater than his disciples? Well, absolutely he was. But if Jesus, who was greater, was able to lay himself down, to get down on his knees, to serve his church in the context here of the disciples, so we as husbands need to get down low and serve our wives. We need to do the things that we don't want to do, the things that we, we, we know that we could do but we might just turn a blind eye and let our wives do or maybe we find it hard to do or we don't want to do we'd rather to be rather be served than to be served to rather be served than to serve ultimately for us men marriage is a call to come and die to lay down all our rights, lay down our ambitions, lay down our plans, and to serve our wives, taking the initiative to love and serve them with joy and humility, seeing her as more important than ourselves. It's a beautiful love, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an, um, it's a sacrificial, spirit-empowered love. There's no way you can do this without the Holy Spirit in you. Yeah. You can only do it with the Holy Spirit. So first, it is a sacrificial love. But secondly, it's a sanctifying love. Verses 26, 27, he says this, that he may sanctify her. That's the church, because uh, he's talking about Jesus, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle with any or any such, that she might be holy without blemish. So Paul says, look, in the same way that Jesus sanctifies a church, so husbands, our, our, our love for our wives should be sanctifying. Well, what does this mean? Well, I don't think it means that we stand between God and our wives and we represent them. And therefore, our work is their work. And therefore, we work in such a way that they're sanctified through our work. No, I think Jesus does that 
But what it means, I think, is this, that we take on the responsibility to seek the welfare of our wives as it relates to their love for Jesus. That we're interested, that we're concerned with, um, with, with um, how their, their, their love for Jesus is, that we keep on pointing them always to Jesus. As we talk through what it means to, to uh, in, in our marriages, to sort of do the right thing, we make decisions, or, or as we're processing through the, the things of the day, what are we doing? We're saying, turn to Christ, put your hope in Christ. Don't put your hope in me, put your hope in Christ. And so we want to see them sanctified. That means become more like Christ. And so we point to the word and we point to the promise of God. So another question for us might be as husbands, are you shepherding uh, your wife faithfully? Are you caring for her soul? Does this come across your mind? Do you think about um, and do you know what are the, the hopes and the fears and the dreams and the temptations and the, the disappointments of your wife? And for those of us uh, who aren't married, then I think also within the church, we, we do take on a special relationship that not in the same way, with the same responsibility from God in, in, in the sense that we will be drawn for account as husbands for it, but we must be also concerned with one another's sanctification, aren't we? And care for one another's care for, for those who aren't married, care for those who have been married and aren't married now, care for those who would like to be married but aren't yet. And then finally, the love that we should have for our wives is a satisfying love. Verse 28, it says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, but no one hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Paul says, husbands, you should love your wives as your own body. The husband uh, is, you know, when we think about um, loving our own bodies, we probably don't, well, maybe we don't even think about loving our own bodies. I think it was a good word from Gillian there about, uh, um, you know, <laughs> loving our, our bodies uh, and, uh, you know, eating, eating food, but recognizing there's a spiritual reality that is more significant than the, the physical reality. But we naturally take care of our own bodies, don't we? Sometimes not very well, but, you know, if, if we've got uh, hunger pangs or just even peckish pangs, then we, we'll go and feed our body. It's a natural thing that we do. We'll go to the cupboard and rifle through, and then we'll realize that Joe has taken all the biscuits and hidden them from you. And then you'll get very frustrated and you'll search everywhere in every single cupboard uh, to see if you can find the, the biscuits. Um, and often disappointed because <laughs> Joe's a good hider of biscuits. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that was just a little aside. Um, Anyway, what I was saying, oh uh, yes. So basically you, you, nourish your, you, you nourish and care for your own bodies in the same way we're told to nourish and cherish our wives like Christ nourishes and cherishes his church. Why? Because you're one flesh. You're not two now, you've become one. And so to seek the welfare of your wife is really to seek the welfare of yourself. 
And so we should think, you know, what is it? In what way could I serve my wife that she might become emotionally, spiritually, physically satisfied, that we might love her and see that her needs are being met? So just as you long for intimacy, just as you long for joy, just as you long for security and health and peace and companionship, so does your wife. How could you seek to meet those needs in satisfying her, in her enjoying her relationship in marriage, her being happy in the marriage relationship? So husbands, I, what are you doing to cherish your wife? What are you doing to nurture your wife? How attentive are you to her needs? So that's the, that's the command there for us as husbands. But what about wives? Well, again, how are we to be spirit-filled wives? Well, there's kind of two words, two instructions that come out of this passage. One is to submit and the second one is to respect. And she does, the wife does this in the same way that she would respect and love Christ as Lord in her life. Why? Because Christ has passed on his authority to the husband. In verse 22, it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husband as to the Lord. For husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and in himself, its savior. Um, and so the first thing here is to submit, which really means to arrange oneself under. And again, it means to lay down one's own agenda and live in submission to another's leadership. Whilst Paul doesn't talk about this, doesn't talk about exactly this here, to me, my mind always goes to this submission to the Garden of Gethsemane where we see Jesus, who is God himself, submitting himself to his father, not because they're not equal, not because they're not valued, not because Jesus is not God himself, but because that's the relationship that he has with his father. He says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, the son, submits to the will of the father. And in such way, Jesus, we are wives, we are to submit to our husbands. Why? Because that's the that's the role that they play in the order that God has set forth for, for humans to uh, be, be looked after. This doesn't demean us to submit in any way um, as if it was, would be to demean Jesus to submit to, to, the, to the Father. Now, of course, the Father is perfect and your husband is not. But that does, doesn't, doesn't give us reason not to submit. And again, when we say submit, I don't, don't mean that whatever his whim is that, that you do, this is not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about that as you walk life together, as you come across uh, decisions that need to, to, be, to, to, to be made together, as the husband seeks to lovingly uh, lead you, that where submission is required, that you're willing to do that. And that leads to what he talks about in verse 33, where he uses this other word called respect, which I think really is the same thing, that to respect and submit means really for us to love. Think about this, to submit, submit is to give oneself up to someone 
And to love means to give oneself up for someone. So whilst the nature of the love is slightly different, the command to both the husband and the wife is the same. Give yourself up for one another in submission and respect. Husbands, give yourself up for one another by sacrificially serving and leading her. So let us reject all improper caricatures of this teaching. Pictures where wife's role is akin to slavery or servitude. This top-down army commando barks out orders and, uh, um, you know, the wife says, yes, at the double, at the double, you just tell me how high. You know, that is not what we're talking about. And often people can caricature it. No, we're talking about a loving leading, a real depth of, of love that leads to sacrifice for our wives and then a deep love that leads to submission and respect. Wives, let me encourage you to support your husband as they lovingly lead you in your family, to be a family that seeks to live the Jesus way. Now, if your husband is not leading you to uh, live the Jesus way, then you should um, speak up and you should say, and you, in that sense, I don't think you should um, seek to obey your, your husbands, if they're asking you not to obey Jesus. Jesus is number one, husbands are second. But where, that, where he's doing that, let me encourage you to make it easy for him as he leads to lead. Respect them even if you disagree with them. Interestingly, um, the sort of breadth of the submission, uh, he says, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So there's, there's, there's not an area where we can say, well, yeah, you can go there, but you, you can't go there. Um, or, you know, you can have that area, but this is my, my, my area. No, we should submit always. Again, this is in the context of a loving relationship. What's the time now? Okay. Let me just bring this to a, to, to a close. My hope is that everyone who is married here thinks that their wife is the most amazing wife. Um, and uh, I think that is probably the, the, the best way, just like hopefully kids think that you as parents are the most amazing parents or, um, yeah. So I think my wife is amazing. And um, she really... Um, is so patient and kind to me even when I'm making a mess of things and she has always she's been marked by um, being willing to follow even when there have been difficult decisions to be to be made and I remember on one occasion I may have shared this story in in the past uh, but I'll share it again I remember on one occasion when we were deciding where we, where the Lord wanted us to go after we'd been in Edinburgh and we went to visit a church and uh, this was a, it was a lovely church, but it was really set in its ways. Um, and uh, on, on basically, I was go going to preach, and um, I was uh, someone said to me, uh, "Excuse me, are you not going to put a tie on?" And I thought they clearly don't know me. Um, I said, "Look, I think if you put a tie on, you'll uh, you'll make a better impression, and and we really want you to come here." Um, and I think a tie might make a difference and a shirt, you know, like a proper shirt. And, you know, my husband's got a shirt and a tie and I think we could lend it to you. And we've got some trousers as well. And I said to, to them, you know, 
bless you, but I don't think there's much point in me dressing up if you would ask me to come if I weren't going to dress up afterwards. I think just, you know, I'm just going to, if you want to give me a jumper, I'll put a jumper on, if that make you feel better, but nothing more than a, more than a jumper. Um, and, um, and also there, there, uh, we sat on a, a um, we were there to sort of, I was there to, 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 to meet people, but also to preach. And um, myself and Joe sat on a, a bench and then somebody came out to us and said, you know, oh, maybe you don't want to sit on that bench because that bench is somebody else's bench. So I was like, okay. So anyway, it was a lovely church, but it was, it had its um, little four boys, if you can say that, the way in which it, it worked. And on the way back, me and Joe had a discussion in the car. We were saying, you know, what, what do you think, Joe? And uh, I'm, dri I'm driving back to, to Scotland. And all of a sudden, like, all I hear is this sobbing next to me. And um, I was like, you're right, Joe. And if anybody knows me, I don't like tears. I'll do anything to get rid of them. I threw her some biscuits, you know, anyway, I put the music up, no, I didn't. But um, uh, so I said, you're right, Joe. And she's like, yeah. And I said, why are you crying? She said, I, I, she said I, I know that if God tells us to go, then we must go there. But I, but I don't wanna go. I don't wanna go, but I know that if God tells us, then we'll have to go. And that's always struck with me as um, an example of what it might mean to sacrificially submit and serve. Obviously, it wasn't just to me. It was a submission to Christ, ultimately, uh, that she was expressing. Um, and in the same ways, you may have examples um, in your own life where that has been the reality where you have sat, you have said you've come to that point where you know you don't want to do something but you say not my will but yours be be done lord and so god calls us to be uh, the the type of people not the type of people let me rephrase that god calls us to live out our lives in the different relationships that we've got and one of the relationships is in the context of marriage and he wants us to live it out in such a way that people see Christ glorified through the things that we do. For husbands, that means uh, loving our lives sacrificially. For wives, that means submitting and um, respecting our husbands as they seek to lovingly leave us. Both of them model the love of Christ, that, the love of Christ that God has for his church, the love that God has for those who don't yet know him as well. But he died so that they might live. So let me encourage you guys, let us uh, imitate the sacrificial love of Christ. Let us do all that we can in the relationships that we have to bring glory to him. Let us not get ourselves caught up with unhelpful caricatures of marriage and servitude, but see these things as beautiful and glorious. This is the, the part that God wants you to play. And as we play them together, God is seen through our marriages. If the husband um, seeks to love his wife as he loves his own body, sacrificially nourishing and cherishing and preferring his wife, then the 
as wives, we will be, well, not wife, but wives will be <laughs> satisfied and enjoy that marriage. And there'll be a picture of, of, of Christ to others who are watching in. And as wives, we respect our husbands and take time to, to encourage them and support them in the task of leading. Then again, husbands will be satisfied. And that dynamic together will be fruitful and beneficial, not just for our own marriages, but for the church and for the wider world. But let us remember, we can do none of this in our own strength, but only with the strength that God gives us through his indwelling spirit in us. Now, maybe you're not in, maybe you're not in, a, in a marriage relationship. The same principle applies to your friendships. Without Christ, we won't be able to live the life that, that he wants. So without the Holy Spirit, we'll not be able to live the life that Christ wants for us. So let's bow our heads in prayer and let me uh, pray for, for you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, Lord. I mean, it's not a controversial word. It's a glorious word that you've given, that you give us in Ephesians. And yet at times we may feel awkward about it. We may feel awkward talking about submission. We might feel awkward talking about respect. We might all feel awkward uh, about leading. And yet these is the, this is the way in which you have sought to order human society. Lord, we, we want to be people that seek the welfare of others. We want to be people that put you first in all things. And we just cry out to you and say, we need help in, in these most intimate of relationships. Strengthen marriages, I pray, in Oikos. Build marriages up in Oikos. Protect marriages in Oikos, I pray. Father, I pray that as we seek your kingdom first and as we seek your way first, that we will be satisfied as we serve. Father, do this all for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Jez, so much for uh, leading us tonight. Thank you for bringing the word to us and, uh, and for all the messages that we can